There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is sure in this place. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. We shout out your praise. We sing to the God who heals. We sing to the God who saves. We sing to the God who always makes a way. Cause he hung up on that cross and he rose up from that grave. My God still rolling stones away. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. We shout out your praise. We were the beggars. Now we're royalty. We were the prisoners. Now we're running free. We are forgiven. Accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord sing praise. We were the beggars, now we're royalty. We were the prisoners, now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord sing praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. We shout out your praise. Thank you. You may be seated. It's a wonderful day to uh, to be at church, and um, it's great to know that the cold weather that arrived yesterday or Friday is going to be gone, and it's going to be up in the 80s next week. So with that, again, just we're so excited that you've joined us here this morning at Cross Timber. We look forward to worshiping together. We've still got some folks streaming in, and that's a great thing because we just got started. And I wanted to let you know, give you a heads up, we're going to be reading from um, 1 Peter chapter 3 in just a few minutes. So you may want to find your place there. But I um, just want to welcome you. If somebody hasn't welcomed you, and just um, let you know that we um, we appreciate you being here. We look forward to worshiping together. And um, as we... We sing as we share scripture and as we study God's word together and we're I'm excited we're finally after a break getting back into the book of Hebrews and so we'll um, we'll continue there in a few moments but just hope you felt welcome enjoy um, the presence of the Lord as we worship together um, this morning.
Would you stand and sing with us? That he gave his only son, whosoever believes will not perish, they shall have eternal life. I shall hold to the cross. I shall hold to God alone, for His love has salvaged me, for His love has set me free, for God so loved the world that He shall wait upon the Lord. I shall wait upon His word. By His grace, I am released. By His grace, I am redeemed. For God so
Thank you. You may be seated. 
Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Peter writes these words, For Christ also suffered once for all, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God from a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Gentlemen, we come. Join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the freedom that we enjoy to openly come and worship you, Lord, to give you praise, honor, and glory. Lord God, thank you for all of your blessings, especially the sacrifice of your one and only Son, Jesus, and for his death on the cross. Lord, we offer back some of which you have blessed us with in these our tithes. Bless them, grow them, use them as you will. In this we pray. Amen. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done on earth as in heaven right here in my heart. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done on earth as in heaven right here in my heart. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us. Forgive us. We forgive the ones who sin against us. Forgive them and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done on earth as in heaven. Right here in my heart, Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done on earth as in heaven. Right here in my heart, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us, forgive us, as we forgive the ones who sinned against us. Forgive them. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
Let your kingdom come. It's yours. It's yours. Oh, yours. Oh, yours. The kingdom, the power, the glory are yours. It's yours. It's yours. Oh, yours. Oh, yours. Forever and ever, the kingdom is yours. Father, let your kingdom come. Would you stand and sing with us? Who can stop? 
Thank you. You may be seated. Amen. If you have your Bibles, um, you may have turned already to Hebrews chapter 8, um, but I will, as a form of, of self-disclosure, let you know that um, I erroneously typed that um, and sent it to put in the bulletin. It should be Hebrews chapter 9. Um, it is a, um interesting um, thing for me to engage in typing. Um, you know, some people some people will gauge their typing in words per minute. Um, mine is gauged in um, keystrokes per word, which is about 17 keystrokes per word. Um, and if you do the math, you will quickly figure out that there's not many 17-letter words. So uh, it, it's um, it's a challenge, and I've never taken the time to learn. But and also, I evidently can't tell the difference between an eight and a nine. But I will say this: if somebody can 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 um, quote Hebrews. Um, Chapter 8, verse 14, from memory, I'll buy you lunch. Um, if you haven't looked, there's not a verse 14 um, in chapter 8. But there is in chapter 9, which is wonderfully where we are. Um, along those same lines, I, I have a friend that I talked to at Starbucks. His name's Ray, and Ray's a retired guy that um, drives for, I think, Uber. And um, he, he entertains me with just jokes and words of wisdom and things like that. And he came in the other day, and it was Friday morning, and I was working, and he said, Rusty, you know, why don't you just wing it this week? Just wing it. He goes, you shouldn't be working on a Friday. He said, just, what are you doing? You need to just wing it. And I was like, you know, Ray, I couldn't do that. All the while I was thinking, okay, Ray, um, as, as good as I can get is spending all the time I can, and, and that's not that great. If I were to wing it, it would become, you know, very evident very quickly. And so, you know, I say that, that even in the midst of all those things, stuff still happens. In fact, just as um, Morty, right before we started, Jeff had to help me correct my PowerPoint because um, I got something in there that I don't know where it came from. And so um, I'm thankful for other people, and I'm thankful for, for most of all, God's grace. And I'm, I'm going to walk over here and get my iPad because um, that would be winging it if I did not bring it. And um, you would figure out very quickly, he's winging it. Hebrews chapter 9. It's been quite a while since we um, visited this wonderful book of Hebrews. In fact, we took a break before the holidays, and now we're, we're back to it, and so I'm excited to, to jump back in, and I wanted to start with a question. Have you ever been in a building, and you see this particular sign, restricted access, authorized personnel only? You know, if you're like me, I immediately want to know what's on the other side of that. What's going on in there? How can I get in there? You know, whether it's through a door or past the gate. What's going on in there, and why can't I see what's going on in there? But the truth is, I can't. You couldn't because, you know, the access is denied. And I say that because today we're going to look at, just briefly, the Old Testament tabernacle and the worship that went on there. And there was restricted access. All Israel could enter the um, outer court to bring their sacrifices, but that was as far as they could go. They were, if you wanted to say it this way, on the outside looking in to the place where God's presence dwelled. Now, priests could go into the holy place and do their 
daily attending, but only the high priest could go into the most holy place. And that was only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And it really wasn't for true fellowship. He went in to make an atonement or a covering for sin. And what we celebrate, and we'll see in the passage today, is that that Jesus willingly laid down his life to do away with the restricted access sign in religion. He tore the veil. He entered and remained in the most holy place. And through Jesus, you and I can have direct access to God. The God who created you, the God who made the universe, the God who is in charge of everything. And because of what Jesus did, there is no more barrier. And so as we look at these first 14 verses in chapter 9, I want us to think about this. Jesus' death on the cross secured eternal redemption, provided direct access to God, and enabled godly living. I want to read these verses, and then we'll pray, and we'll look um, at it as we have time, because there's much to, to cover, and it's exciting things. So verse chapter 9, verse 1. Now even. The first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, and is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are Offer that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are thankful today for what you have done for us, for your goodness toward us, your love that you poured out at the cross, that because of the problem of sin 
and the barrier that sin erects between God and ourselves, we needed someone to be the Redeemer, to give us access, to tear down the veil and to open up the way. And we thank you that you are the new and the living way, that we come to God the Father through Jesus the Son. We thank you for the help that you provide as we study your word, and we trust that you'll bring it again this morning. Help us to see what we need to see from these verses and then apply it to our hearts and live it in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I know it's been several months since we ended chapter 8, verse 13, because there's not a verse 14, and we were talking then about Melchizedek and the comparison to Jesus, who is the great high priest. And all along, we were looking at the theme of the study of Hebrews, thinking about this, that Jesus is better. He is better than anything religion can offer. Because through Jesus, we can have a personal relationship with God. That's what Christianity is all about. And Jesus invites us, and the book of Hebrews underlines this, to draw near to him. And we'll see in this comparison that the, the Old Testament system in the tabernacle and the temple didn't provide that nearness to God. Now these chapters, chapters 9 and most of chapter 10, many um, commentators think that this is the heart of the book of Hebrews. It focuses very clearly on the redemptive work of Christ. Jesus dying on the cross for sin and then being raised to new life. The wonderful truth that Jesus gave his life so that sinful men and women like you and like me could be reconciled or made right with a God who is holy. That Jesus was the perfect, sinless, once and for all sacrifice for sin. And that through his obedience to God, he brought down the barrier between God and man. And today, in his name, we can have true access to God. So today, I want us to think about this. We're going to look at the Old Testament offerings briefly. Those offerings and sacrifices that were set out in that covenant God made with Moses. And you'll see the word first covenant in chapter 9. That's just the, the covenant that God made with Moses in giving the law to the people. Where Israel was asked to obey God and keep the law. And God promised that he would bring protection and blessing on his people. And if, you, if you're doing a one-year Bible or if you've read through that, you know, you're probably far enough along to figure out that God's people struggle with that continually. God said, this is what you need to do, and they didn't do it. But God loved them. And he would, you know, maybe judge them, but he would come back and he would continue to love them and pour out himself to them. But it really is just a picture of the struggle that you and I have today. It's kind of easy to look back at the Old Testament and think, gosh, all they had to do was just listen and obey, and God would take care of them. But it's a little more difficult to look at ourselves in the morning in the mirror and think, well, you know, really all you have to do, Rusty, is to listen and to obey, and God will take care of the rest. And so we'll take a brief look at the tabernacle, and then we'll look briefly at what happened inside with the priests, that, that priesthood that started with the tribe of Levi and continued through the sons of Aaron, the brother of Moses. And so sometimes you'll hear these words, you'll say it's called the the Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood. It's, it's the priest that, that God ordered in his law in the Old Testament. And we'll see that it was temporary and it was imperfect, but 
it really points us toward something that is better. The perfect offering that Jesus would provide. When we get to verse 15 next week, we'll find out that Jesus is the mediator of not the first covenant, but the new covenant. A covenant that Jesus paid for with his own blood. And God promises to fulfill all of his promises through his son, Jesus. And believers, followers of Jesus are beneficiaries by faith. So there's three things in the outline. Um, They really are the three things you need to know. Um, They're right, and so you don't have to worry about making corrections. And the first thing we need to see is that the Old Testament sacrificial system provided only a temporary covering. That's really verses 1 through 10. And verses 1 through 10, the writer uses those to set up what he really wants us to understand, and that's in verses 11 through 14. But this is about the tabernacle and some of the regulations associated with the activity of the priest. And so in the first five verses, he speaks about the tabernacle. It's referred here to as a tent. And he says it's material or earthly. It was a real tent that was on firm earth that God's people followed the instructions of God to build. And it was their temporary portable sanctuary that wherever they went, the tabernacle went. And that tabernacle signified the presence of God where God dwelled among his people, and they would camp around it. And verse 1 tells us that now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and the earthly place of holiness. That's how he describes this tent, the place where God dwelled. Now I want you to look briefly. There's a a slide that gives you kind of a a picture of this. Um, It's not to scale, but it gives you, you know, as we're going through these verses, kind of lets you know where things actually are. Now, your Bible may have holy place and most holy place, or your Bible may have holy place and then this holy of holies, which is kind of the way the Hebrew mind would express something superlative. You know, like we would say the best of the best or the greatest of the great. Well, this is the holiest of the holies. There wasn't a more holy place on earth because this is where God dwelt. Now, we're going to take just a brief tour this moment. If you want a full tour and you have time this afternoon, you can start about Exodus chapter 25, read through Exodus chapter 40. There's a couple of chapters that don't deal specifically with the tabernacle, but you can find out all you need to know about the tabernacle in those chapters. But this description that is that is brief in nature talks about the rooms of the tent and what are actually inside them, pointing us to the main idea in verse number 14. And so he begins by talking about the holy place. And you'll see that there is a large rectangle in the diagram. It's just inside the outer court where you see the labor and the altar of the burnt offering. So that outer area, people were allowed to enter, but only in that holy place. If you wanted to go in there, you had to be a priest. Now inside there, the verses tell us there was a lampstand, there was a table, and on the table was the bread of the presence. And then verse 3 says, behind the second curtain, again, taking this a little further in, was a second section called the most holy place. And you can see that. That's the small rectangle. And between them was that second curtain. The first curtain was the door to the outside. And that curtain we know from you know approximate measurements was about four inches thick. It was woven out of linen. It was 30, about 30 feet long and, or wide and about 60 feet high. So you can imagine the weight of this um, curtain. 
And beyond that, this thick barrier was this place called the most holy place. Now verse 4 tells us the altar of incense was there. And if you're following along, you see in that diagram that the incense altar is outside. Um, you can read in, um, in Leviticus about an exodus about the position of that and there's several possible explanations of whether it was inside or outside we could probably eliminate the fact that the writer of hebrews got it wrong but probably what i like to think most often is is that because it's so closely related to what went on inside of the holy of holies that that the writer just uses the word in to include it in that and this altar was burned on the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16, it tells us that if that incense was not burning, it was burned for this purpose so that the high priest wouldn't die. And so the incense was burned. It flew, you know, it, it flowed into the temple, into the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. Inside there, we do know that was the Ark of the Covenant. Um, inside of the Ark, it tells us quickly, was a golden urn that had some manna in it, Aaron's staff that budded, and the stone tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on. There was a lid on top of that with two golden cherubim called the mercy seat, and on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And so he gives us this brief tour, and at the end of the tour, he tells us, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So he's letting us know that we could say a lot more about this, but... It's important to move forward because really the important aspect of it is that it points toward something. It points toward Jesus. And so he tells us what the building looked like, the tabernacle. Then he tells us a bit about what's going on inside. What did the priests do? Well, every day in the holy place, the priests would perform ritual duties. Verse 7 says that they would go regularly into the first section. Every day they would burn incense, they would fill the lamps, and they would trim the wicks. On the Sabbath day, they would replace the bread of the presence on the table. All of this went on in that outer area. Then on that one day, this day of atonement, verse 7 tells us that into the second place, the holy, most holy place, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Leviticus also tells us that that sacrifice was necessary because of the uncleanliness and the transgressions of God's people. But you'll see that all of this activity that takes place is external. All of the, the law that had to deal with doing offerings, bringing sacrifices, burning incense, washing ceremonial to be Washing to be cleansed. Everything was meant to cleanse the worshiper on the outside. But yet they didn't change anything on the inside. They affected the outward appearance, but it didn't change the heart. And so because of that, it's imperfect. Some of the phrases from our, our verses, it cannot perfect the conscience. And it was offered only for the unintentional sins of the people, because if you read in the law, there was no provision for intentional premeditated sin. 
which when you fast forward and you get to the New Testament, you were so thankful that God is a forgiving God that forgives us not only for the things that we didn't mean to do, but the things that we meant to do. But when we come to him in confession and repentance, he provides forgiveness. So there's imperfection. Verse 4 highlights it even more. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So all these animals died, but none of them could take away the sin. They could only cover the sin. And then verse 7, if the first covenant had been faultless or perfect, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And so it's imperfect, but it's also temporary. So on that day, once a year, which came about every year, high priest went in, sin was covered, Nothing changed. Another year rolls around and they would have to do it again. And in verses 8 through 10, the writer tells us that the Holy Spirit uses this to to teach us or to illustrate the fact that while it was temporary and imperfect material, that it pointed toward something that was better and perfectly sufficient. Because all those daily services that the priests performed never provided any access to God. The high priest offered sacrifices to cover sin, but it never would remove it, and it never granted access to God. And despite being imperfect, in fact, in spite of the fact that it couldn't cleanse the conscience or lead us directly into God's presence, it still had a purpose. I was reading um, one of the, the commentaries. Um, it's the Holman Bible commentary. It was written by Dr. Thomas Lee, who taught at Southwestern um, several years ago. And he compares the Old Testament um, system, the Old Covenant system, to an easy-bake oven. Now, I don't know if you girls or ladies ever got an easy-bake oven, but it, it seems kind of preposterous that with a, a box made out of plastic and a light bulb, you could cook anything. But that's what they present it as. And so, you know, you mix it up, you put in there, you turn on the light bulb, and maybe it gets a little crusty on the outside. Maybe it just gets dried out. But, you know, I I would think rarely it would produce a result where you would have, you know, a finished result that you would say, that looks like the cake my mom baked in the oven. But your mom probably had to try it. But no, that easy-bake oven is an imperfect picture of the perfect oven given to, you know, children to learn this is what baking is like, so when I get a little bit bigger, I can bake in the real oven. And it may not produce the same results, but it pointed toward the wondrous things that could come from an oven. In the same way, the old system pointed to Christ who could and would change things forever. You see, this temporary covering would be replaced by the second thing in your outline, a permanent remedy. It's still I still have to scratch my head when I think about this, that before the world was formed, before I was even thought of, God had a plan in place for my redemption or your redemption to deal with this problem of sin. And the old system all of the Old Testament, all of the rituals, all of the things that were in place were just a shadow or a type of God's plan. 
And as you read in Colossians chapter 2, that while those things were a shadow, Jesus himself was the, the substance. He was the one who the shadow represented. And so Jesus, in this permanent route, he came to be the perfect sacrifice for sin. It's in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have to come. It's a great transition verse. Wow. When Christ appeared, it's that idea of, you know, here he is on the scene as a high priest of what? The good things that have come. It's a good time to mention this. Um, this section is written in his, the historical present perspective because it, it talks about you know things um, from the past as if they were still ongoing, but they have already happened and pointing towards something that has already you know taken place to remind us that everything that the Old Testament tried to do was perfected when Jesus came to earth as a man to save you and I from sin. To open up the access to God and the access to every spiritual blessing. And so this brief description of this old system, while it pointed out it was imperfect and temporary, points us toward Jesus' death on the cross, which was spiritual, perfect, and eternal. Why would I say spiritual? Look at verse 14. Who through the eternal spirit offered himself. Now, a lot of people think that this reflects um, the truth that Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit. And you can certainly see that demonstrated as you read through the Gospels, that he operated in the power of the Spirit. Some say that it refers to Christ's eternal divine nature. Um, I think in these instances, you know, it's best just kind of hit it down the middle and say it's probably both and together and not be stuck up on making a distinction. But what stands true, no matter how you look at it, is that Jesus always operated in the power of the Holy Spirit throughout his ministry, even to the point of the cross, and even when he was raised out of the tomb. And it's a spiritual, it's spiritual in the sense that not only was it empowered by the Spirit, but that Christ's sacrifice brought change on the inside or change in the spirit of man. Remember I said earlier, all the Old Testament rituals were helping us to get cleaned up on the outside. It's like a Saturday night bath or whatever. You know, you get ready, bath in the morning and a shower to get ready for church. But what Jesus offered was internal transformation, spiritual change. So it was spiritual, but it was also perfect. Look at verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Nobody could ever possibly begin to count on this earth the number of animals that were slaughtered in sacrifice at the tabernacle and the temple. How much blood was spilled how many times that blood was offered as a sacrifice that those carcasses were burned. And what we're reminded of is that they could never wash away sin. It's a reminder to us at this point that there's no amount of good things you could ever do. There's no amount of church things you could do. 
there's not a certain number of Sunday school lessons that you could teach in life to win God's favor or His approval. There's not a checklist of, of goodness that if you check off all those things, you know, you're in, your sins are forgiven. There's only one thing, and that's that trust in Jesus. Because just as we were reminded, as we sang earlier, there's only one thing that can wash away sin. And that's the blood of Jesus. The phrase there, by his own blood. It wasn't by the blood of another. It wasn't the blood of an animal. It was his own blood. Jesus entered as the great high priest, and he secured eternal redemption. So he died as a perfect, sinless sacrifice. He was both God and man. He was in a real human body. He suffered. He bled. He died. He was nailed on a cross. God raised him from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God. His work was finished. It was by his blood. And the work of Jesus in redemption is eternal. Verse 12, thus securing eternal redemption. Remember, we talked about how temporary and imperfect the rituals of the Old Covenant were. That it just provided a covering. It just got them by to the next time. But all of that pointed toward this eternal redemption. An eternal remedy. It should fill our hearts with, with joy if we follow after Jesus to be able to say, There is eternal redemption in Christ. There is a Savior, and His name is Jesus. Even better, it's to say it personally. I have an eternal Redeemer. I have a Savior, and His name is Jesus. Which brings us to that last point, this permanent remedy resulted in a lasting result. Three things. One we'll focus on more in a couple of weeks, but it just, you have to mention it now, is that it gave us direct access. That curtain, that barrier in the, in the tabernacle was a physical barrier, four inches thick. No way you could get around it that signified the barrier between God's holiness and the sinfulness of man. Oh, but the barrier that Jesus dealt with on the cross is far more impenetrable than a four-inch curtain. It's all the sin of all the people for all time. That all the rams and all the goats that were offered up couldn't cover. Our access is limited. Our access is blocked. It's more than limited to a holy God because of the problem called sin. Which means there's no possibility of a personal relationship because there's a big problem that exists between us and God. But because of Jesus, the barrier called sin has been defeated. The veil has been torn. And by faith in Jesus, any person can have fellowship with You or I, in the deepest, darkest part of our life, when we get to the point of thinking, man, I just don't know if God could ever love me for this, can offer forgiveness and redemption. The worst person you could ever imagine doing the most 
unbelievable needs you could ever think of when they need their heart for Jesus and say, God, I'm a sinner. They have forgiveness and redemption. In Jesus, there's no one that's written off. There are no lost causes. Because Jesus, the one who Hebrews tells us is our great high priest, made a way and we can draw near to God because Jesus came to earth and came near to us. Now think about it in this light. Think about the Jewish worshipers that came to the tabernacle. And then, oh, when they had that wonderful, glorious experience of having a a temple, a permanent resting place, dwelling place for their God. The same system was still in effect. Offerings, rituals, washings, day of atonement, sins covered but not removed. And today, the temple's been destroyed. There's a mosque up on that mountain. And faithful Jewish followers pray and mourn at the western wall, the nearest spot that they can stand in to where the temple still on the outside of the temple. They're still distant from God. So not only do we have this responsibility to pray for those people around us, those people in our country, but we also pray for the, the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, that God would continue to open blinded eyes, that they would see that the veil has been torn and they can enter in through the one who is called Jesus or Yeshua, the Messiah. And since Jesus appeared the high priest of good things to come, those who have faith in Jesus can enjoy a personal relationship. When we get to the end of chapter 10, we're going to talk about that, about just the personal nature of the relationship we can have with Jesus. But also it gets even better. We can have a clear conscience. Look at verse 14. Purify our conscience from dead works. Jesus' work did what the Old Testament sacrifice system could never do. The Old Testament to clean, to cleanse our whole life from the inside out. See, religion always tries to clean the outside and hope it'll change the inside, but it never works. That's why all the futile things of religion are worthless to cleanse us. And we're cleansed from sinful works which lead to death. Our own striving to get to God. The sinfulness of our heart. The things that we do that displease God. And we're also cleansed in our conscience from guilt and from shame. Here's the deal. There's not a dollar amount of charitable giving you can do to ever clear a sin-stained conscience can't log enough volunteer hours. There is no form of escape no matter what avenue you travel down that will ever remove you from guilt and shame. There is only one way. Because Jesus came to purify our 
conscience from dead works. He is the one who's the full and final sacrifice. His forgiveness in the same way is full and final is well. It's the same. It's final. And so this burden of guilt is removed in Christ. I get so frustrated with myself sometimes because I really think sometimes in my mind, I think I just like to carry burdens. I really, and you may be the same way. I mean, you, you know, you just like to, to carry heaviness and worry and doubt around because you feel like if you're not doing those things, it just somehow is, is not right. You know, everything really can't be that good. Um, I'm a worrier. I'm probably worrying right now about something um, that I said earlier that I shouldn't have or something that I might say in just a minute. But you know, you think about that. You know, we carry those things. God never intended us to carry those burdens. He called us to lay those things down. And sometimes, even as Christians, we walk around with guilt and shame. Why? Because we haven't had that honest moment with God where we have confession and repentance. And we allow Him to apply the blessing of forgiveness to our lives, to see that we really are forgiven, and to walk in the freedom that it provides. Now, we, we still are going to sin as Christians. If anybody ever tells you that, they're, they're lying. You know, Christians don't get um, the ability to, to not sin. We still sin. But we are given the perfect remedy when we do sin. It's 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive our sinning. Look at this, this word, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness not make you look pretty on the inside, give you a smile and happy face. It's to cleanse your heart from the inside that affects what's going on on the outside. And so when you're tempted to wallow around in your past failures and your past sins, you know, kind of like a pig, like to wallow in the mud, be reminded that the blood of Jesus reminds us that if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. And then we find out that this freedom in Christ and a clear conscience unlocks the potential to serve the living God. Verse 14. Wow, what a job description, right? What do you get? I get a chance to serve the living God. And let me just tell you that that is true worship. All the flow of this passage leads to this exciting truth, this application point from the author. Listen to verse 13 and 14. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defied persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the main purpose of this forgiveness and access to God is to serve the living God. Now, he's certainly not talking about religious busyness because we just looked at that and figured out it doesn't work. It's not even Sunday worship at the end of a busy week. Well, that's just a small part of it. It's the lifestyle of serving God in your daily life where your life lived out from day to day is your worship. Where you live your life as an offering to the Lord. He gets your time. He gets your money. He gets your your thoughts. He gets your actions. 
where you do what you do in the name of Jesus for the glory of God. I have come to appreciate a single-volume Bible commentary that was recommended to me several years ago by William McDonald. It's the Believer's Bible Commentary. And I just want you to listen to what he says about these verses. Talking about this spiritual service to God. It was service bathed in fervent, believing prayer. It was willing, devoted, tireless service, fired by a spirit that loved the Lord Jesus supremely. It was a flaming passion to make known the good news about God's Son. Serving the living God. Because Jesus' death on the cross secured eternal redemption, provided direct access to God, and enabled godly living service to God. Here's the truth. Jesus removed the restricted access to God's Son. The barrier has been torn down and you and I can enjoy the good things that Jesus secured by His death and His resurrection. We can live a life of worship with our conscience purified by the blood of Jesus. Now along those lines, before we pray, I just want to give you three things to, to remember or think about. And the first one is just simply this. Don't rely on religious activity to remove the guilt of sin. You know, it's confession and repentance. It's not check writing and helping little ladies across the street that will remove the guilt of sin. It's not coming to church. It's not even reading your Bible. Confession and repentance. Second, unconfessed sin hinders the desire to serve God. I think in the church of 2024, I'm becoming more and more convinced that it's not busyness that keeps God's people from serving and doing the Great Commission. It's unconfessed sin that hinders our desire to serve God. So if you find yourself in that place, why am I not serving God the way I used to, or why don't I serve God like somebody else? Search me, God, and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Go to 1 John 1, 9. Confess your sin, receive the cleansing and forgiveness that He offers. You say, God, I'm ready. I report from duty. What's next? And then lastly, trust in Jesus, forgive your sins, and finish the work you started. Life's hard. Following Jesus is not easy. So we always have to keep our eyes fixed on Him and realize that He is the one that forgives. And He always forgives. He forgives completely. And He always completes what He He's the author and the finisher of our faith. And as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we keep our eyes fixed on Him. Trusting in the redemption He offers that's eternal. 
the access to God that he offers that is unlimited and the godly living that he enables by the power of the Spirit. Let's go to prayer. We join you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you open up the truth of your perfect word to the imperfectness or even the foolishness of, of preaching. That you go beyond words. You go beyond ourselves and you speak to our hearts. And that's what we want to do right now is ask you, God, to speak to our hearts. Help us to listen to you, Lord, with our ears, but also with our spirits and to know what you are telling us to do. It's hard to wrestle with these things, to think that your purpose is for us to serve you and that maybe it's our own unconfessed sin and guilt that hold us back. We wonder why we don't have a closer relationship with you. And we come to come find out quickly it's God, it's not you who moves, but it's us who pulled away. And our sins are just piling up. We don't take time to confess and repent and take advantage of what you someone sitting here this morning and their just thought is, wow, this is really different than any I've ever heard. I've always wondered, can things be different? But I've never really believed anything could. That it's just best to keep on doing what I'm doing and hope things change. If that's you this morning, God, help them to see that you do come to bring change. That it's through your blood, it's through relationship with you, through trusting you in faith, by repenting of our sin and turning towards you, that you can change even the vilest sinner in the hardest heart into a loyal servant who follows after you. We thank you, Jesus. We trust you to do what you can do by the power of your Spirit, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Do pause these few moments. Maybe there's one of those those points that just kind of hit home, and you think, "Wow, that's that's me this morning. That's where I need to focus is on that that aspect of you know unconfessed sin, or maybe relying too much on what you do and not in being in relationship with Jesus. Or maybe you're just discouraged, and you need to just know that Jesus always finishes what He starts. It's not a burden you can't take to him. It's not uh, a problem you can't allow him to be the solution for, and there's not a sin that he's not willing to forgive. We trust in him. He's willing to free you for service, for exciting lives, for service. We're going to listen to some music play quietly, and while the music plays, it's our opportunity to just pause and respond to the Lord.
receive us just as we are, but he's not willing to, willing to leave us that way. He wants to change us and transform us. I want to thank you for, for being here for, for worship this morning, for enjoying this time with us. Thank you for just being a participant in worship and for paying attention. I just want to um, remind you of one thing and just trust you to look to the bulletin for other things involving dates and times, and that's for our, our church family. Um, you may have seen it in the center of the bulletin. Um, and um, we uh, on March the 3rd, which is two weeks from today, um, we will be um, selecting deacons for the next year. Um, in your written material, there's only one name listed, um, but there needs to be two names listed. Um, we just um, didn't communicate um, things clearly to get things the way that we needed to, but we can take care of that. Um, and those two gentlemen are Keith Barton and, um, and Brian Midka. Um, the deacon body has, um, has met and prayed and would, would recommend those two, to, for those two gentlemen to the church for service as deacons. Um, so on Tuesday, um, after the, the holiday of President's Day, a, mail, a letter will, will be sent in the mail, which has not only the, the names of the two gentlemen, but also the qualifications from, about, from the Bible of, of a deacon, and also just encouraging you to pray and prepare for that time on, um, on Sunday morning on March the 3rd when we will, um, we will vote on that as a church. Um, and so that's coming up. It's exciting. Um, I know the guys that are currently serving are you know, excited to have a couple of more guys potentially to come on board and serve along with them. And, um, and for us as a church, that's a benefit for the church because that just means there's, there's more gentlemen to help um, look after the, the members, and it means that each gentleman that serves as a deacon has one or two less families that they um, are working to keep up with. So it's good for, for everyone, but it's not just a process that the deacons decide and the church just says, okay, that's great. It's a process where we have, um, as a congregation, just as much input in the process as the, the deacons. And so um, your part is through prayer and then through the the vote that will be on March the 3rd. Um, other things, you can see the bulletin for that. Um, again, um, thanks for worshiping with us. I want to invite you to stand um, up. The worship team is going to play some music for us. And when we finish singing, um, you are dismissed. The Lord bless you. Oh, precious Jesus.